Good morning. Well, as we've been reminded of this morning, this is Palm Sunday. And we think about what Jesus came to do. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to do what? Seek and save the lost. And so as he began that final week of his life upon this earth, he knew the cross awaited him. He knew that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. He knew he was the perfect once for all time sacrifice. And for those that would turn to him, he would save them. That's at the heart of the gospel, folks. As we think about how to share our faith with this culture, we do need to know what the message is. We need to know what the gospel is. And Paul tells us in that 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians what he received from the Lord, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel message. That's the good news. God so loved us, he sent his son to save us, and we praise God for that. And so we're talking, though, about how to share that message, how to communicate that. How do we share our faith in a culture that has just gone mad, that's just almost totally turned their back on spiritual matters and especially turned their back on God? So we began talking about that last week, and we noted from the book of Acts how prayer always precedes evangelism. Always. We must pray for boldness and courage and power, which Cassie just did, as we determine to share the good news about Jesus with those who need to be connected to him. Because if we fail to pray, we fail. Period. So through our prayers, the Holy Spirit can begin to work on us and in us and through us, as well as working on the people that we're praying for, so that God can just bring people together, one to share the message, the other to receive the message. And as he does that, he can bring conviction in the lives of those that need Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So we have to pray first and foremost. So Prayer always precedes evangelism. But today I want to begin to talk more about the process of sharing that gospel. Because evangelism is a process. And in thinking about sharing Christ with a non-Christian friend, we've got to be mindful that, that there's some steps that we need to take. There is sort of a one, two, three kind of thing when it comes to evangelism. And you can't skip to the end without going through the first part. I remember that old story about a farmer who went to church one day. It seems that there had been a, a big snowfall on that little farming community, and, and so much so that when this farmer got to church, he was the only person that showed up besides the preacher that lived right there next door to the building. And so the preacher asked the farmer, said, well, do you want to go ahead and have the church service? You're the only one that showed up. And the old farmer said, well, if I've only got one cow that comes to the feeding trough, I still feed him. So the preacher said, okay. And so he went ahead and he preached around 45 minutes to an hour, just a, a stirring sermon. And at the end, 
as the old farmer was leaving, the preacher said, well, what do you think? And he said, well, if I've only got one cow that comes to the feeding trough, I don't give him the whole load. <laughs> and so it is when we try to share our faith with people, sometimes we may be tempted to give them the whole load right at the beginning, and, and we can't do that. Not the very first time, because it can be overwhelming to them. So we want to learn to share our faith in such a way that will create in their lives a growing spiritual hunger so that as time goes by, we'll be able to share more and more until they're ready to be confronted with the message of the gospel, that Christ did come and enter Jerusalem and died for our sins and was risen from the dead on the third day. So, I've said evangelism is a process. It generally proceeds through three stages leading up to a decision to trust Christ as Lord and Savior. Stage one is the cultivation stage in which we build a relationship with that person. We address their emotions as we try to become their friend, as we try to build that relationship. Stage two is the sowing stage. That's where we address their mind, where we actually get to present the good news. We get to present the scriptures, how Christ did come. He did die on a cross. He was buried in a tomb. He was raised from the dead. He did ascend into heaven, and he's going to come back someday. So we get to go to the scriptures there and plant the seeds, sow the seeds of the gospel. And then the third stage, the harvest stage where we address their will in seeking a decision for them to accept Christ. Those three stages. Let me also tell you that today there are basically three main forms of evangelism that are practiced today. One is proclamational evangelism. This is just the formal preaching of the gospel. It's what I'm doing right now, okay? But in saying that, let me also say that most people, myself included, are not gifted to be great preachers. And secondly, most people, the majority of people, are not brought into a right relationship with Christ only through hearing proclamational evangelism. Most of you this morning were not one to Christ by just spontaneously attending a church service or a revival meeting and accepting Christ after the first sermon that you heard, okay? A second form of evangelism today is confrontational evangelism or intrusional evangelism. You can see this in different places uh, when Bonnie and I and, and uh Sue and Jim, Denny and Dina, we went on what we call our sibling safari. In downtown New York City, we saw some confrontational, intrusional evangelism. All right? I mean, it's, it's where it, a lot of it takes place at Mardi Gras down in New Orleans, okay? And somebody just out there in the middle of, of a big metropolitan area just preaching in a confrontational way. You better repent or you're going to burn. And, and it's, it comes away. It comes across that way. And, and this is the kind of evangelism, and not necessarily that harsh or that mean, but this is 
the kind of evangelism that many of the cults practice as they just go door to door, all right? It's, it's this practice of walking up to a total stranger and initiating a presentation of the gospel which will result in that individual being asked to give his life to Christ. And let me say that I think it's naive to assume that the majority of people in our current culture will trust Christ as the result of a stranger witnessing to them during a one-time spiritual transaction. In fact, that kind of evangelism today probably turns more people off than on to the gospel. But the third form of evangelism today is the relational type. And this type of evangelism occurs when a Christian becomes acquainted with and eventually becomes friends with a non-Christian and leads them patiently and lovingly through the three stages I mentioned earlier. They build the relationship, that's cultivation, they sow the seed, and then eventually they see a harvest. So let's take a brief survey this morning. And let me ask, how many of you were one to Christ simply on the basis of preaching, proclamational evangelism? How many of you? I don't see any hands. How many of you were one to Christ on the basis of a confrontation with a stranger who confronted you and shared the gospel with you? No hands. How many of you were won to Christ primarily through the influence of your family or Christian friends? Now, now look at the hands. Okay? You get the point. I, you saw the truth of the gospel lived out in their lives, became convinced they've got something that I want, something I need, and you determined to learn more about it, and you responded ultimately. You see, relational evangelism it's the best method to reach our world today. And in that, we learn that the most important step in beginning is to make friends with non-Christians. One of the problems with us as we grow older, though, is we surround ourselves with Christian friends and lose contact with those outside of Christ. And we have to be very intentional the older that we grow, very intentional in seeking out someone without Christ that we can build a relationship with. Now, anybody can do it. Anybody can build a relationship. But that is a crucial part of evangelism. It's a process, but our task is to be sensitive to the lives that we touch each day and to, deter to determine where each person is in their journey towards Christ. And once we determine that, we're going to know the proper tools to help them move on, to move one step closer to Christ. And when that begins to happen, then every day can just become an exciting adventure as we see ourselves as tools in God's hands. And it's time. It's time to bring in a harvest because Jesus said in his time, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest send more laborers into the harvest, and those laborers are you and I, and we need to be going. So Jesus came to save people because people matter to God, and people need to matter to us as well. If you go to a 
doctor's office and you're sitting in the waiting room, they may have a magazine rack or some tables with magazines and newspapers all about you. And all of those magazines and newspapers talk about what? People. All right? Unless you're reading Popular Mechanics, maybe. I don't know, okay? But basically, they talk about people. And who buys magazines and newspapers? People. All around the world, people slap down their money to buy magazines and papers so they can read about people. Amazing, considering that for some people, they get their fill of people every day. <laughs> okay? Which tells us something about human nature, that we people are just enormously fascinated with people, with, with each other. You listen to the radio. The radio is going to play songs that deal with people. I could probably stand up here all day and just, just give you song titles that talk about people, all right? TV is mostly pictures that have people. You go to the movies, you pay, you sit in the dark and you watch a screen that has people. We read novels about people. Our daily conversation is mostly about people. We're driven by our passion for people. In fact, our fascination with people is one of the ways in which we are like God. Because God's number one priority is people. People. And in order to save lost people, God became a people, you might say, and dwelt among people. Did he not? The Bible says when Jesus owns us and fills us, that we will begin to see people in a new way. In fact, Paul writes this over in 2 Corinthians and chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. So the old view of people is gone. The new view of people has come. And so God, who is in the people business, has called us to people-centered living. And so the most God-like thing we can do is to treat people the way Jesus did and to love people the way Jesus did and to build relationships with people the way Jesus did. He was so creative and so unique in the way that he built relationships. And our love for God isn't expressed in pews and pulpits and stained glass windows, but in relationships with people. The way that you and I get along with, with, with people. And if being with God on Sunday doesn't make us better at being with people on Monday, then we've missed the point. Real Christianity shines in right relationships and building relationships with people. So, how are you doing at that? How good are you at building relationships with people that need Christ? I want to look at some examples from the life of Jesus and how he built relationships this morning. 
And hopefully, we'll learn to imitate some of the things that Jesus put into practice. So open your heart a little bit, and let's do that. In John chapter 1, in John chapter 1, and verse 29, John the Baptist has been preaching. People have been going to him to be baptized. And in verse 29, the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now go down to verse 35. Again the next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. They came, therefore, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, if you continue reading that chapter, you'll know that one of the two that followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And after spending that day with Jesus, Andrew goes and gets his brother, Simon Peter, and brings him to Jesus. And then Jesus sees Philip, Philip sees him, and Philip goes and gets his friend Nathaniel and brings him to Jesus. And we just see these relationships begin to grow with Jesus. And there's, I think... Four principles there in what we've read, four traits or four tools found in the master's tool chest for building relationships with people. Now let me just give you all four of them right at the beginning. Number one, Jesus was available to people, he was sensitive to people, he was helpful to people, and he was creative in his connection with people. You want to build relationships with people that need Christ, there's four things that's going to be helpful to you. And we see it in the life of Jesus. So let's take them one by one. First of all, Jesus was available to people. Remember how the book of John starts? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt. And that word for dwelt means he tabernacled among us. When you think of the tabernacle, you think of a big what? A big tent. Yeah. In essence, Jesus pitched his tent right in the middle of your block. All right? Jesus made his home among people. He, he would walk by your house, okay, on the sidewalk. He became flesh and dwelt, pitched his tent, lived among us, among people, right smack dab in the middle of this world, okay? And so in verse 29, when John saw Jesus, Jesus was coming toward him or to him. Folks, that is street-level availability. That is being physically accessible to people. If you want to build a relationship with someone, you've got to be accessible to them. You've got to be available to them. And two of John's disciples begin following Jesus. And sensing them following, Jesus turns and asks, you know, what are you seeking? 
and they are probably kind of caught off guard. And they said, well, where are you staying? Jesus said, come and see. And they went and they spent the rest of the day with Jesus. Now, the fact is, they're going to spend pretty much the rest of their life with him, of course, until he ascends into heaven, the rest of Jesus' life. But you notice that Jesus wasn't hiding out in an office with some rigid schedule, no time for people. He was with the people. He dwelt among them. He did so the whole day on that day. He was personally approachable. He was emotionally accessible to people. People felt comfortable around Jesus. So what are the implications for us? What's the example we follow? Well, if we're going to follow Jesus, then we're going to be available to people. It's hard to build a relationship if you're not available and accessible to someone, isn't it? And so you have to be accessible and available to people. We need to be where people are, not just physically near, but personally near them, emotionally approachable. Because something's wrong when we profess to be spiritually alive, but we're unapproachable. Something's wrong. So we need to be accessible and available to people. But secondly, Jesus was sensitive to people. Sensitive to people. He was tuned in. He picked up on those subtle people signals. He could tell where a person was coming from. He was sensitive to people. He noticed the two men following him. Now, what do you do if you believe someone is following you? You're going to do one of two things. You're either going to speed up your pace and see if they speed theirs up, or you're going to turn and confront, right? That's pretty much what most people would do. So Jesus here, he, know, he realizes he's being followed, senses that. I also believe that Jesus sensed why they were following him, so he turned and confronted them. And said, what do you want? What are you seeking? I don't believe he turned around and said, what do you want? No. What are you seeking? What can I do for you? Now, if you're the one following someone and they all of a sudden turn and confront you and ask you a question, you think you might be caught off guard? You think you might stumble in, in what you want to say? You know, you just draw a blank all of a sudden. That might have happened with, with these two. They might have been stammering in their speech a little bit. Uh, well, uh, where are you staying? Okay. I think they might have been a little lost for words at first, but where are you staying? But Jesus is still sensitive. He simply says, come and see. Now, he could have said, where am I staying? What a dumb question. I mean, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air has nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You should have known that. No. He's sensitive. He gently said, come and see. He wasn't saying, hey, I'm at Motel 6, I'm in room 202, so come and see my room with a view, you know. No. Just come and see. I think he's saying... Come with me, and I'll show you something about the perspective from which I live my life. He was always sensitive. 
So what's the implication for us? We've got to be sensitive to people. We, we need to ask ourselves, am I the kind of person that can pick up on the subtle signals that people send? Can I tell what, where a person's coming from as I'm trying to build that relationship with them? How many of us need to sharpen our people's sensitivity? Have we let our world kind of dull that? Probably so. We need to sharpen that and be sensitive to people like Jesus was. And thirdly, he moves from that. He's helpful to people. He's helpful to people. Some people are only superficially available and sensitive, but not helpful at all. Oh, they'll wring their hands and they'll whine, you know, and say, ain't it awful, ain't it awful, what's, what's happening to so-and-so? I just feel so bad for them. That's not people's sensitivity, that's self-sensitivity. People-sensitive people look for ways to help. Truly sensitive people pay the cost of getting involved in someone's life, and it may cost more than just time. It can cost you in a number of ways. Who's in your path right now? Who's in, in your sphere of influence right now? Who has walked into your world right now that could use your help? Is it someone at work? Is it a young single mom with children? Is it a teenager that's going down the wrong path? Is it an elderly person? We've got people here in our church that are helping elderly people in ways that, well, that person can't do for themselves. And there are people that have just stepped in and are, and are really helping. Helpfulness is the bread and butter of Christian virtues, folks. Helpfulness is to be standard equipment on all models of Christians, all right? Helpfulness. Not everybody can do all kinds of different things. Not everybody can preach or sing or play a piano or lead a Sunday school class or whatever. But everyone can be helpful, just like Jesus. That, that's the Jesus touch. So look back at Jesus. He turned and he asked, what are you seeking? You know, or is there something I can do to help you? And they reply, yeah, we, we want to know where you're staying. And it's like Jesus says, okay, fine, I can help you with that. Come with me and I'll show you. The implication is a helping person is a Jesus person. A helping person is exhibiting one of the traits of Jesus. So in building the relationship, Jesus was available and accessible to people. He was sensitive to people and where they were coming from. He was helpful to people. And fourthly, he was creative with people. Creative with people. God loves variety. God loves uniqueness. God loves differentness. I don't even know if that's a word, okay? But, but, he, but he loves that. You know, we got a big snow here not too long ago, eight to ten inches or whatever. Did you know that in a cubic foot of snow, there are 18 million individual crystals and no two of them are alike? You talk about uniqueness. Look at your fingertips. And try, if you can, to see your fingerprint on those fingertips. How many of you have ever been fingerprinted? Yeah. Not asking you why, just asking. Okay. Yeah. No two sets of fingerprints have ever been found alike. 
of all the millions and billions of people that have lived on this earth, they've never found two sets of fingerprints that are exactly alike. You talk about uniqueness. God only makes originals, okay? He doesn't allow copies. He breaks every mold he uses. Psalm 139 says we've been fearfully and wonderfully made. And since God has made each person uniquely different, then Jesus creatively deals with every person in a fresh and unique way. Jesus didn't have a one-size-fits-all approach to people. Every person's different. And so he was unique and creative in the way that he built his relationships. One of the things he used quite often, though, was asking questions. Jesus was just a, a master at asking questions, and throughout the Gospels you see that. When he, in the fourth chapter here of John, he comes and he meets a woman at a well. What does he ask her? Will you give me a drink? And that began the building of a relationship. Okay? Will you give me a drink? He asked a person that was sick, do you want to get well? When many people quit following Jesus, he turned to his disciples and asked, you don't want to leave too, do you? He asked another one that he was about to heal, do you believe in the Son of Man? To Mary and Martha after Lazarus died, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Questions. He begins relationships. He, he grants dignity to people and even opens up closed minds with simple questions. Sometimes we're more inclined to, to just tell and pound on someone rather than ask. But asking gives dignity to people. And when they answer our question, it helps us to be sensitive to where they're coming from. It helps us to be helpful to them. But in asking questions, we've got to be careful not to be too intrusive because we're not talking about a cross-examination here. We're talking about being sensitive, maybe even indirect at times. So we've got to choose questions carefully and word them delicately because you're, you're, you're wanting to build a relationship and not a barrier. So Jesus was very creative in his dealings with people. When I think of him there in John 4 with the woman at the well, wow, you talk about creative? Yeah. Will you give me a drink? Why do you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? Jesus said, if you knew who was asking, you'd ask him for a drink and he'd give you living water. <laughs> you don't even have a bucket. Jesus said, go and call your husband. He said, I don't have one. Well, you're right in that. You've had five and the one you're living with now isn't your husband. Whoa, I perceive you're a prophet. I mean, just the creative way that he dealt with her. How about that man that was small in stature that ran ahead and climbed a tree to see Jesus? Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to have lunch at your house today. Creative in the way that he built relationships, and we have to be creative too. He was available, sensitive, helpful, and creative. And we're going to see that more in the weeks ahead. Weeks ahead. 
But our goal is to build the relationship so that ultimately we can plant the seed. And this is step one, cultivation, building that relationship. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. An ambassador. Is it the goal of an ambassador to alienate the people that he sent to? Well, obviously not. Our goal as Christ's ambassadors is to build relationships so we can plant the seeds of the gospel. So, do we have the Jesus touch when it comes to building relationships? Can we learn from the life of Jesus some things that will be helpful? There are times to be tough, times to stand our ground. I mean, even after Jesus on the, day, on, uh, the triumphal entry when he came into the city, what's he do the next day? He cleanses the temple again. Yeah. I don't think he was attempting to uh, build relationships on that day with those people. But he was certainly presenting a message to them. There's a time to stand your ground. But there's a time to be accessible, sensitive, helpful, and creative. Let's do that. We're going to stand and sing a hymn of decision this morning. It's a simple chorus in the book called People Need the Lord. They do. And we've got to build that relationship in order to 